your grace in all situations. God, that we would be people who are not agents of condemnation, but instead agents of love, agents that reflect the very nature of Jesus. And that those around us who don't know you would see something within us, God, that would inspire them or uh, draw them to you, Father. I pray that you use us in that way, God, that we would be faithful to follow you into that. We thank you, Father. We thank you for this time together. We love you. It's in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, You can be seated. We'll dismiss the uh, school-age kids uh, to head back to um, their classes. And while they're doing that, I invite you to open uh, your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Either your uh, old-school Bible that has actual pages or maybe the new version of that on your phone. Um, And we will have Scripture on the screen, but... I would really want you to follow with us. So we put this on the screen for those of you who are not very familiar with the Bible, maybe. um, But for all of us who've been walking with Jesus, even just for a short time, um, my heart is that we would see it in the text together. So Jonah chapter 3. And while you're uh, getting there, and that's the scripture that uh, Weston read a few moments ago. Let me recap what we've seen so far. You're probably very familiar with the book of Jonah. Uh, maybe uh, the VeggieTales version of it, um, but there's some real, I mean, great truths here, and I feel like God is doing a work in our church in light of us walking through this, that we identify all too closely ourselves with Jonah, just as Jonah was a runner and didn't want to participate in God's call in his life, we too often find ourselves running from his call. So Jonah, I mean, so God called Jonah to go to this evil city, Nineveh, uh, Jonah did not want to go, did not want to hear the call of God on his life. And so he went the opposite direction, went down to Joppa, got on a ship, headed uh, to Tarsus, and uh, wanted to flee, it says, the presence of the Lord. Well, God uh, spoke to Jonah. Jonah refused to listen. And so then God says, hurled a storm upon the ship. Scared the sailors half to death. Um, They end up becoming believers through this whole thing and praying to God. And again, you see Jonah just resistant to God's call, said, I would rather die than do what God has called me to do. They throw him overboard. God and his, I mean, persistent pursuit uh, of Jonah saves him with this great fish. He spends a few days And the belly of this great fish finally repents at the end of Jonah chapter 2 and is spit up on dry land. Let's see, it says in verse 10 of chapter 2, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited up uh, Jonah onto the dry land. And then chapter 3 starts with kind of uh, this direction we're going to head today. I think we see really four major themes or big picture purposes of the book of Jonah. One is to show that God pursues sinners, how he's pursuing, um, how he's pursuing you even now. We've talked about that. Many of us are just like Jonah. We too are running from God's call on our life and God in his kindness towards us is leading us to repentance. He's not done with us. He is in his just Pursuing grace of a loving God. I think that's what we've called this series. You see this evident over and over. The second big picture is to contrast the difference between God's heart for the lost and our heart. 
Jonah is an indictment of the religious community. Jonah is Israel in his day. God had chosen this particular people of Israel to be a light to the nations, but they did not want to do that. They wanted to make it more about themselves. Jonah's an indictment of that religious community. Uh, Israel of his day, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, the only people that Jesus ever screamed at in the Gospels is the Pharisees who didn't get God's heart for the lost. And finally, most of the church in our day. And this is where it comes into our neighborhood a little bit, that we have lost God's heart for the lost. We don't lay awake at night burdened for the lost neighbors around us. We don't ever really even give a thought or consider to lost family members. We have just grown apathetic, and just most of us, if we're really honest, just really don't care. And Jonah is a light of God's heart for the lost to us. And many of us, even today, need to repent like Jonah did. A third purpose of the book of Jonah is to give us a real glimpse of, uh, of the real Savior, the true and better Jonah, Jesus, who did everything that Jonah didn't do and was thrown into the storm of God's wrath and swallowed up by the earth for three days for us. A final purpose of the book of Jonah is to show how God uses his people in the world. How God and his redemptive purposes chooses to include us. God didn't, doesn't need us any more than he needed Jonah. He could have used the big fish to speak the gospel if he wanted to. He could have written his love for us in the stars, spelling out the actual gospel if he wanted to. He could have used anything, but he chose to use Jonah, and he still chooses to use us. In this little passage today of chapter 3, we, we see really three scenes First is God's call, and then Jonah's message, and finally Nineveh's response. So I want to look at the text under those three headings and see what God has to say to us. Will you pray with me real quickly as we ask God to really speak to us? Father, you are amazing and incredible. You are a loving and a God who pursues, and you're not satisfied with our condition even today, that you are currently making us into the image of Jesus And you're calling us to take a step of faith and to follow you even further into what you have for us. We thank you that we are your sons and daughters. Because of the death of Jesus, that we can uh, rest easy. We don't have to prove anything to anyone this morning. But still, your call on us is greater than even we realize. And help us to repent of the apathy and mediocrity that has seized many of us. And to follow you with a great step of faith even today. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It says at the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 1. And I want to caution us not to read through even even verse 1 too quickly. I love this verse. And we really could spend the entire morning on this uh, verse. It says in chapter 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. You remember the first time it came, Jonah ran. But God in his pursuing grace of Jonah continues to use Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. 
If you're like me, many of us read scripture uh, maybe way too fast. We don't see sometimes the importance of some of these things. As I was reading through this passage many times this week, this phrase just caught my heart every time and welled within my heart this deep sense of gratitude that God uses us a second time and a third time and a 45th time, that his call continues to come, come to us even when we blow it. As a matter of fact, this word coming to Jonah a second time is really a theme throughout all the Bible. Let me take you back to the beginning of God created this paradise and places Adam and Eve in the middle of it. And just a few chapters in, right, they sin against God. They hide from God. And God promises them, even then, that he's going to fix this. That there's going to be a second time. That I'm going to send a second Adam who, who would be better than the first Adam. The fact that the second time is in our Bibles is God's grace to us. It's a reminder that there's no finality of sin that can't be turned around by the grace of God. No situation so bad, no decision so foolish, no people too lost or no person too lost that God's grace can't rescue them from themselves. No human so broken that they live outside of God's pursuing grace. This is the theme of the biblical story. And we see this, that Jonah quotes in chapter 4, we'll get to it in a second, we see this theme of God's pursuing grace a second, third, fourth, tenth, one hundredth time again and again. Back in Exodus 34, Moses has this encounter with God. It says in verses 6, the Lord passed, in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We see it in Nehemiah chapter 9 as Nehemiah looks back on this self-revelation of who God is in verse 17, speaking of the Israelites, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Here it is. But you are God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Again, the psalmist talks about this in Psalms 103, verse 7 and 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. The prophet Joel mentions this in chapter 2, verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The very thing that Jonah says in the next chapter, chapter 4, that we'll get to next week After God grants repentance in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do you get the picture that's woven through every passage, every book of the Old Testament seen perfectly in the person of Jesus in the New Testament and supposedly should be seen through the church even of today that we serve a gracious, loving, and patient God? Maybe you would say to yourself that God is patient with me. Just think about it. 
Think about this second time. Think about all the times that God has laid before you his way or your way. And all the times that you, in your own pride, have chosen your way. Maybe the arguments that I could tell you even today that I've had with God when he laid before those two roads before me. Luke, I want you to go this way. Don't do what you want to do here. I want you to go my way. And I've argued with him and chosen my way again and again. And in his loving kindness, he's just right there to to walk with me, to be uh, his arms open for me, calling me back to himself. God is patient with us. He's patient with his children. This is the very nature of God. This is the pursuing grace of God. God's call comes to Jonah a second time. Now the patience of God is always tethered to the purpose of God. And what is God's purpose here? His purpose is that his glory would be spread through all the nations through his children. And because the patience of God is always tethered to the purpose of God, God is doing a great work in the person of Jonah, but he's also doing a great work in this exceedingly wicked city of Nineveh. Look at verse 2. It says, God spoke to Jonah. Verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, you'll notice that this is the same call that God gave Jonah in the very opening verses of this scene in chapter 1. Notice also that here's the thing about second chances. That God will take you right back to the place that you said no the first time. Sometimes I feel like we just want to ignore God's call in our life and we just want to label that call as an irreconcilable difference and then we can move on and learn something else about the character of God, but God does not work that way. There are never irreconcilable differences with God. I am wrong and he is right. And that's what real confession and repentance is. It's agreeing with God against ourselves oftentimes. God's not going to take you anywhere until you go back to the place where you said no to him and you say yes to him. My dad used to use this illustration with me so many times. I would call him when ministry was rough or when I felt like I wasn't getting a fair deal. And instead of giving me sympathy as a wise father would, He says, Luke, do you believe Jesus is the great teacher? And I said, I believe he is. He would say, Luke, Jesus has a lesson for you here. He's got a lesson on the blackboard for you. And he's got something, son, he's trying to teach you. You can run away from it if you'd like. But when you finally come back, Jesus is going to start right back at the place where he left off when you ran the first time. He doesn't wipe the board clean and start over. He brings you right back, sits you down, and then resumes teaching you the very thing that he's trying to teach you. I wanted my dad just to give me sympathy, not a biblical lesson normally at those times, but those truths echo in my heart even now. Even when I feel, uh, when I wallow in my own self-pity, I can hear my father telling me, Luke, Jesus is trying to teach you something. And I love this, that God doesn't just, it would have been grace just to save Jonah's life. 
and say, okay, now I just want you to go back and be a good country boy, uh, you know, back in your hometown. It would have been grace to do that. But God doesn't do that with Jonah. He doesn't reassign him to a different thing altogether. No, God is using Jonah, a runner, to bring a message of repentance to an entire evil city of runners. As Brian Loritz, a black pastor on the West Coast, says it, I love this. Oftentimes, God takes your mess and he makes it your ministry. He takes you in your weakest points and displays his redemptive strength through them. God doesn't just look past your scars. He often uses your scars as your greatest strength in ministry, which means this to us today. Church, don't waste your pain. Don't waste the things that have happened to you, even the evil things that have happened. And God has brought restoration and redemption and forgiveness through those things. We don't ignore those things, but oftentimes those are the platform that God wants us to use to minister to others in the body. Maybe you would ask yourself this this morning, where has God brought healing? Where has God rescued you from? And how can you use the lessons that he's taught you and the the image that he has made you in, the abilities and giftings he's given you as a point of ministry? Why would God call Jonah back to Nineveh again? Jonah's already disqualified himself. He's already intentionally ran from God. He said he'd rather die than do what God asked him to do. He's defamed the name of God again and again. Why would God call Jonah? Because God never calls us to do anything because we are able. He calls us to do these things because he is able. Again, it would have been grace enough just to forgive Jonah, to rescue him. But God uses Jonah to do the exact thing that he called him to do in the first place. God uses Jonah, still sinful as we're going to see in the next chapter, still broken but repentant. Jonah, in maybe the weakest point of his life, gets to see God's strength at work. And as I said, even in the first message, the book of Jonah is really not about Jonah at all. The book of Jonah is about the pursuing grace of a loving God. And in a very similar way, God wants to use you. He's calling you to something. I think a lot of times we in the church, we feel like on the other side of salvation is just, I've been picked to be on God's team. I'm now on God's team and now I'm just going to come in and my, uh, my ministry to him is going to be sitting here every Sunday and being just a, a faithful Christian and I'm going to give some money and I'm going to serve in the kids or whatever it is. But God has got such a greater call on your life than just to come here week after week and sit. He's calling you to something. He's calling you to some place. Even now he's done that. And we have an option that we're going to participate with him and we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to go and see what he wants to do, surrender to him, or we're going to continue to fight against him, choosing our own way. Surrender to God allows ordinary broken people to do extraordinarily supernatural things. Surrender to God allows ordinary broken people to do extraordinarily supernatural things. That's what we see here. Look again at, uh, at verse 2. God's call goes to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
Verse 3, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, which is about 60 miles. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. As Weston pointed out last week, and if you missed Weston's message, I think it may be the greatest uh, message that we've heard all year. I, I, would, I would encourage you to get it. It spoke to my heart in incredible ways. As he pointed out last week, this was a hard call on Jonah's life with a hard message. It would be similar to God calling us to go to North Korea and to bring this kind of message of judgment on them. I also want you to notice that God's call to Jonah was not completely descriptive. It took a major step of faith for Jonah here. He didn't even get the message until he took a step of obedience. Jonah took a step of faith. I think many of us, we hear God calling to us and we want God to lay out the plan for us. Well, God, how is this going to look and what is this going to be and and where are we going to go and who are we going to reach and all these things. And oftentimes God doesn't give you that. Most times God leads with a pen light, not a spotlight. Just enough faith, just enough clarity for us to see to take a step. Just one step. We got many of you doing that. This week we've been focused on um, our mission focus through the Lent Guide has been fostering an adoption. And God has created this really cool culture in our church where we've got dozens of families that are participating in this at some level. And we don't know all the ifs, ands, or buts, or we don't know how this is going to play out. We just don't know. But God does, says, hey, Luke, I want you to trust me. I just want you to take a step. And that's the thing he calls all of us to. I remember Ashley and I having the conversation. We had a really good job in Texas. Uh, we loved our job there, and things were going well. And I felt God really stirring my heart to go and plant a church. I remember sitting down with Ashley the first time and say, hey, babe, what do you think about planting a church? And she didn't have to think about it. She said, no, I don't think that's in my future. I began to pray to God, God, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to convince her. And she's not easy to convince. God began to work in her heart. And that was her next question. I say, okay, babe, I think, I think it's time. I think God's calling us to go plant a church and She's the, uh, she's the logical one in our relationship. I'm the dreaming one. She's the logical one. So she says, okay, well, what are we going to do about insurance? What are we going to do about the kids' school? What are we going to do? How are we going to afford this? All these you know, good questions that we need to ask. But oftentimes, God doesn't give that to us. He says, listen, bud, I just want you to trust me. He called Abraham out to go to a city he didn't even know where it was. Look at every time that God used any one of his faithful servants through Scripture. He called Noah to build a boat. He'd never even seen rain. I mean, just think about the crazy things that God has called his people to do. And he said, I just want you to trust me. Just trust me. He called David to pick up a slingshot and a few stones. This little teenage boy. Can you imagine the conversation between any of those with God? But God, I'm not prepared for this. Remember the defense even Moses brought back to God, but God, I I can't even speak correctly. God said, you know what, Moses, I'm going to use the very thing that you think is the weakest, and I'm going to display my strength through that. And that's how God moves in our lives. He calls us to take a step of faith. As a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
So if God gave us the full declaration of every step that we would ever make, then it would be no faith for us. It would require no faith, and we couldn't please God. So God just puts one step of faithful obedience in front of us and says, I want you to follow me. Just one step at a time. And we see that Jonah did this. He goes to the city of Nineveh, doesn't even know exactly what the message is going to be. He hears the message. As a preacher, I can imagine my own conversation with God. Even if on today that God gave me a message like this. Jonah's message says at the end of verse 4, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It was a message of upcoming judgment. In a city that already hated the Israelites and certainly hated God's people, they were exceedingly wicked city, and this is the message. I can just imagine my conversation with God. Well, God, couldn't, couldn't we talk about your patience? Couldn't we talk about your incredible love for us? God, certainly, couldn't I just go in and make friends with the king first? Couldn't I just, would you give me just a few months to make a few friends before I start declaring this message? That's what I would talk to God about, but God has his way and his reason. And for us to argue with God from our limited perspective is so foolish. God's just saying, hey, I just want you to trust me. I want you to go and I want you to do it this way. The message was clear. A line in the sand from God to this exceedingly wicked city. But you know what? As a matter of fact, you do see the patience of God that the upcoming judgment was not within hours. It was 40 days. And you know what gets me here? There's nothing special about Jonah's message. There's nothing winsome about the message. There's nothing necessarily compelling about the message. You wouldn't have walked away from that message on a Sunday morning and be like, man, that Jonah, he has studied. That Jonah knows the Greek. That Jonah, his illustrations were right on point. You would say nothing of that about Jonah's message. Hey, 40 days and then God's going to destroy you. That was his message. There was nothing special about Jonah's message other than than his obedience to God. That was the only thing special about it. Jonah's obedience resulted in the entire city coming to repentance. And here's a great reminder for us, church, that the burden of change on the other side of your obedience is not on you. That is not the burden. The burden is not on you for your lost neighbors to come to faith. It's not on you. The burden of change is on God, and he's got broad enough shoulders to handle it. We are just tools in the hands of God. The lesson for us is just do what he says. God tells Jonah to go and preach the message given, and he will handle the rest. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We don't know what's on the other side of our obedience. And to be honest, it's not even in our control. We should leave that part to God. Our responsibility is not even to be fruitful. God does that. Our responsibility is to be faithful. Just be faithful. Just take a step. Just trust him. Our part is obedience. Our part is faithfulness. Jonah, I just want you to go and give this message. Then we see this incredible thing happen. We see this This incredible move of God that is just literally unbelievable. It says in verse 5, in our logical sense, if we've been called to North Korea to give this kind of message, we would just be a little one line in the newspaper and he he lived for three hours. That's what what our message would be. 
But God and his great love for the Ninevites and God and his great love for Jonah and God and his supernatural sovereign grace is working in the hearts of these people. It says in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What an amazing result. Jonah obeyed God and God brought about a supernatural spiritual change in the entire city. As I read this again and again this week, I've prayed this for our city. That God would bring such a supernatural change in our city from the greatest to the least. And this is something that only God can do and God might do. And we're praying for God to do, to bring revival and repentance, a spirit of brokenness across all of us. But let me tell you this, it starts in the church. The truth is most of us don't care about the lostness around us. We don't care about our lost neighbors. Most of us don't. We just don't care. And until God would bring, until we pray that God would give us a spirit of brokenness, a spirit of repentance in our own heart for just the apathy that has seized us. That we're okay going weeks and weeks and weeks without seeing God move. When is the last time you lost sleep from someone around you who's lost and doesn't know God? When's the last time? When's the last time you were so overburdened with the situation that you were praying for God to intervene in, that you didn't eat, that you even fasted as these pagans did? The truth is, if God is going to move in a mighty way in our city, it's going to start in the chairs and in the pews of his church. God did this amazing work. And Nineveh, can you imagine? Scholars think that there was at least 100,000 people in Nineveh and Some think maybe even up to half a million. That's a lot of people. They called for fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I think this verse is here to confront our fear and to comfort our hearts. If we're honest, in this room, most of us resist the call of God or any faith step because of fear. Fear that we'll be rejected. Or in Jonah's case, maybe killed. Fear that God won't do something or that God will do something. Fear that we don't have enough spirituality to intercede on people's behalf or proclaim the darkness, uh, proclaim the gospel in dark places. Just fear. It paralyzes us from taking faith steps. Even this morning, I really feel like God's calling you to do something. This great faith step to reconcile a relationship, to, to give a generous donation to some ministry. He's calling you to open up your stingy hands a little bit, to, to take a step, to, to participate in going to some foster classes or pursuing adoption. Start leading in your huddle or your community group. God's calling you to take a faith step. And if we're not careful, we're going to side with our enemy and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have a spirit of fear and timidity instead of a, a, a spirit of power and of love. Most of us resist the call of God or any faith step because of fear. We let fear paralyze us. The message of Jonah to us, the message of Jesus to us, is don't agree with your enemy. He operates from a place of fear, manipulation. God tells us in 2 Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear. 
And we see as more description this, this awesome move of God as Jonah was obedient. We see this spirit of repentance that takes over the city. In verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published all through Nineveh by the decree of the king and of his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. We see this beautiful picture of repentance in the city of Nineveh. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do and he did not do it. We have good biblical pictures of repentance all through scripture. I think this is one of the greatest ones. I think God, I think the more mature you are in Christ and the more mature that you grow and the closer you grow to him, the more you repent. The more you repent. I always looked up to Billy Graham as this great hero of the faith. I heard him say this one time, that the longer he walks with God, the more he repents. And what a beautiful thing. But let's not confuse worldly grief with gospel repentance. I believe God's calling us as a church to repent of this spirit of apathy within us. Here's a few things the Bible mentions that what a beautiful picture of gospel repentance in. One, it's grief over sin. Grief over sin. To be aware of your sin is one thing, but to be grieved over your sin is something else entirely. I've met with many people over the years in counseling that got caught in their sin, and they were grieved over the pain that their sin caused them, but not grieved over the sin itself. They would say, I'll do anything if we can just make this thing right. But what they were doing is just being more and more manipulative. They were not, they were not humbling themselves. They were not grieved over the sin itself. To be aware of your sin is one thing. To be grieved of your sin is something else entirely. There's a kind of repentance that focuses on you and how you feel and the sin within you. But there's another kind of approach, a true gospel repentance that says, look at how a good God has been so faithful to me. Your your repentance isn't a, I'm going to get it from, I'm going to get it attitude, but from a, man, look what I've done (coughs) to my friend Look at all God's done to me. And look at how I have stabbed grace in the back. I've told this story before. It's probably a year and a half ago that I had to um, discipline my Ellie Joyce. Um, for those of you who don't know, Ellie is my middle child, and she just loves unicorns and rainbows. As a matter of fact, we had a crawfish boil yesterday, and she had a pet crawfish named Pinchy. Um, and her... Evil cousin Kai took Pinchy and threw him in the boiling pots. Death to Pinchy. So we had our first crawfish funeral yesterday. Um, They sang the cousins, 10,000 reasons, um, while Carter presided over the funeral. 
and said that Pinchy was a good crawfish and never pinched anyone. (laughs) She was literally weeping over the death of the crawfish. And Hudson, my four-year-old, was telling her, Ellie, it's okay. That's how we eat them. You kill them so that we can eat them. Ellie lied to me, which is just not normally in her character. And then she started digging the hole, and I knew she was lying. Ellie, did you lie to Dad? No, I didn't. And she made up this story, which is a pretty good story, actually. Eventually, she, she was honest with me, and I took her to the back bedroom. If you ever come to our house, the back bedroom is the discipline room. I took her in there and sat her on the bed, and I said, do you know what you did, Ellie? And she said, yeah, I, I lied to you, and... We always open up God's word, you know, what God says about lying, right? You know, what you've actually done, Ellie, is not just lied to dad, but you've disobeyed God. She's weeping. The hardest spanking I think I've ever given. It's easy for me to spank my other two. They mostly always deserve it. But to spank Ellie, after we did the whole discipline and she's still crying she looked at me and said, Dad, I'm so sorry I broke the Bible. I'm so sorry I broke the Bible. I think she, as a little five-year-old, understood a little bit of what grief over sin is. It's not just that you got caught. It's that you have offended a God who is so generous to us and so patient and so pursuing How could you treat him like this? When there's a switch from look what I've done, now I'm going to get it, to I've broken the heart of God that leads you to hating sin, not just the consequences of it. I think you're on to something. I think that's gospel repentance. Think about it. Most of us just want to change our circumstances. We just want to get out of the pain. We want to repent on our terms. We still want the control. We don't want to look silly. We don't want to expose all the darkness. We want to let just maybe a little light in, but that's not true repentance. And I see this. We learn this lesson from this great king of this wicked city, Nineveh. It says in verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, look at his posture. He arose from his throne, removed his royal robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. This is real grief over sin. You see this picture of humility. You see this picture of him making himself low, him intentionally making himself uncomfortable. Real repentance always involves grief over sin, but it also involves revival toward God. True repentance always carries with it contrition. In contrition, you feel what God feels about your sin. You don't just see it or you don't just confess it as sin, but you feel what God feels about it. In order to agree with what God says about sin, I have to see it the way God sees it. That it's not just a struggle, that it's not just this little pet thing I deal with, but it's sin. And our sin is what ultimately nailed Jesus to the cross. God hates sin. He does. Sin is an abomination to him. Sin is not something that he excuses and allows us to sweep under the rug. No, sin has to be dealt with. It was our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. We see this turn, this revival towards God. Look in verse 8. As the king proclaims, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. 
Maybe your version says earnestly to God. There's this picture of revival towards God. True repentance is a not just a sorry that you broke God's rules, but that you broke his heart. That you stab grace in the back, that you spit on a friend. True repentance always leads to a life reconnected with the Father. Isn't that what we see in uh, David in Psalms 51 as he prays out to God? God, return to me the joy of my salvation. My bones are wasting away in my sin. Would you return to me the joy of my salvation? You see in real repentance this revival toward God. And then lastly, in real gospel repentance, you see restitution towards others. When your repentance is genuine, you are quick to move to those people that your sin has injured. It should lead to restored community. It should lead to unity within the body. Godly and true repentance will seek out to make restitution to those who have been wronged. You see that again in, 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 in Jonah 3. As not only has the king led his people in a wrong direction, but he is attempting this restitution towards others by making this decree. Let all of us fast, not taste anything. They're going to put sackcloth on all the people and on all the animals. And I thought about just a minute as I was reading this, like sackcloth would have been a good business to be in at this point. They need a lot of sackcloth. Even the animals... They're going to keep their animals from eating and drinking. The king is serious about this. Let everyone, the king says, turn from his evil way and the violence in his hand. You see this restitution towards others. Godly repentance always carries it. Whether the classic picture of this is Zacchaeus, when his heart is turned right toward God, he gave back even more to all those he had wronged. Here's what this means in here. It's God's bringing conviction about a certain sin or something that you've done, a specific place that you said no to God and yes to you. If you told a lie, then you go tell the truth. If you stole something, then you give it back. If you injure someone, you apologize and you do what you can do to make things right. That is this picture of restitution. We see this incredible move of God all over the entire city of Nineveh. I'm going to leave us with maybe three quick things of application and we'll be done. I think it's at least threefold the application. First, some of us just need to repent. Real gospel repentance. And God in his grace has exposed you sometimes and some of your sin that you've been found out. And that sometimes is the best thing that could ever happen to us. The more dangerous way is these sins that we easily hide, this idea of apathy or mediocrity, this lack of pursuit or interest in the things of God. Some of us really do need to repent, real gospel repentance. For some of us, God has sent us with a message to a specific place or person He's called us to reach those around us. He's called us to be a voice for him at work. And because of fear, we've not followed him. We've not taken steps of faith. And God is ready to you to make the decision, just like Jonah did, to repent, to choose his way, to follow him and wherever he's leading you. Who's God sending you to? Where does he want to use your voice, 
your declaration of the gospel. Last thing I think we see here is that Jonah's refusal to be obedient, to take a step of faith, is not only hurting Jonah, but it also delayed a move of God in the Ninevites. Joseph stood in the way of Nineveh's forgiveness. In chapter 2, verse 8, that we looked at last week, he talks about those who cling to worthless idols. And certainly, Jonah forfeited God's grace in his life for a time and walked through difficulty, but he also delayed God's movement in the Ninevites. That your sin, we talked about this last weekend, the week before, not only hurts you, but hurts others. And I feel like this, as I kept reading this, just kept reminding me of uh, Galatians 2.20. I feel like Jonah 3 is an arrow straight to Galatians 2.20. Maybe you remember it. Where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think this is the message of Jonah. In chapter 3, God calling him a second time, him seeing God do an amazing work, and this is God's call on our lives, that I've been crucified with Christ. And this is what we celebrate in communion. The band's going to come up. They're going to lead us a little bit. Our communion ushers are fixing to come. And what a beautiful picture that we get to have every week of Christ, the greater and better Jonah, who gave everything for us, who threw himself into the storm so that he could provide for us salvation. Let me pray for us and for communion, and I'll give you a few more instructions. Father, thank you for your grace that is so evident, for your pursuing grace of a loving God that you've, you're committed to making us into the image of your Son. Thank you for that, for maturing us Lord, we ask forgiveness for the times where we failed you. We ask forgiveness for the apathy that has seized us. Father, I pray that you would continue to work in and through us. Thank you, Father, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. I pray that we, your church, would follow you even when we don't understand, even when we don't see the whole picture, we would say yes. Lord, I can only imagine what you want to do in this city, in our neighborhoods, in our nation, around the world, when your people, your sons and daughters, would not fight against you, but would say yes. So, Father, that's my prayer, that we're laying our yes at your feet. We don't even know what the question is. We're laying our yes. Moving our hearts in a great way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a few.